Well, welcome back. Uh, we have Ron Jansen back with us, and Ron is um, uh, just a great friend, and he's actually shared at a couple of our base camps as well. And so people are like, why do you bring on all these guys that you've already had at your physical locations? And I'm like, well, that's the beauty of it, because I am a little bit familiar with the story, and they were well-received amongst our tribe, if you will, at our brewery locations, brewery-based locations. But it also gives a chance for a guy to say, hey, you know, grab his wife or his significant other, his family, his friends, and uh, let's hear the story, but it also gives us an opportunity to take this story into perpetuity, so we can tape this thing. Uh, we'd like to think that base camp is kind of like uh, you know Vegas, and so what happens at the brewery kind of stays there. So it's more of the R-rated version. We've had some guys that have just you know literally put a lot of information in front of us that uh, even maybe made some grown men uh, blush. And we don't want to do that with uh, live stream. This is not quite focused on the family, but it is a little bit more family friendly, PG-13. So it gives us an opportunity to take Ron's story and uh, just create a great atmosphere where we can kind of walk through this in an interview format, unlike Basecamp, which is more of a monologue and then Q&A after that. Um, I want to start out of a book. Ron, if you could hold that book up there, it's sure. called Fallujah Awakens, if I'm saying that correctly. Mm -hmm. And it's just a snapshot in time of your company mm -hmm. um, in Fallujah, which was, we talked a little bit before we came on camera, it was one of the, uh, well, certainly the most contested battle or one of them during the whole uh, engagement. And literally, it felt like when I read the book and pieces of it, it felt like, man, this is like Stalingrad or Leningrad all over again in World War II, where the two sides are just coming together both know that the stakes are pretty high, but it's just block by block, building by building. A lot of um, every day is filled with uncertainty and it's very um, aggressive. I guess you could say it would be parallel to like the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, um, if military people that are watching have uh, read about that as well. So it had this feeling like there was a lot at stake. The war is gonna swing one way or another uh, based on what happens there. And so you were right in the thick of that, a West Michigan guy, and here you are, almost literally parachuted into uh, just a really aggressive uh, combat situation, which most of us that are civilians can't relate to. So I just want to give a snapshot here and just read this first chapter just to set the stage. And again, it's Fallujah Awakens, Marines, Sheiks, and the Battle Against Al-Qaeda by Bill or Ardolino. Ardolino, thank you. All right, I'm wearing my old man glasses, so I'm gonna do my best here to, to read. A mission to flush out and kill or capture insurgents in Hawa kicked off in the early morning hours of March 3rd, 2017, the largest operation of Alpha 124's deployment aimed for surprise. Three of the company's four platoons would surround and sweep through the isolated village in a swift maneuver to design to cut off any chance of escape for their targets. Jansen's men had been down there uh, here only once uh, before their deployment, about a month uh, or so earlier. His squad had been moving through the area with Weapon Platoon's 2nd Squad, where the other Marines had taken a huge amount of fire from insurgent machine gunners and snipers near the village. As uh, Jansen's men, can I say it the Dutch way or is it? <laughs> you got to say Jansen. I got to say yeah. Jansen. All right, we'll, we'll do the American way. I'm sorry, yeah. it's the Dutch thing coming out of me. <laughs> As Jansen's men laid in and around a palm grove, waiting for a fleeing target or the order to assault, an insurgent drove a white sedan straight into their lines while rushing uh, to back up his compatriots. The Iraqi belatedly realized his error and backed up furiously before grabbing an AK-47 bailing out of the vehicle and shooting most of a magazine at the Marines. He never had a chance. He went down in a hail of bullets, and we'll actually have some uh, pictures that kind of lend itself to that story. As they started to search the second house in the village, Lance Corporal Wortman uh, spotted something. Inside, he saw three groggy men and something that looked like a st uh, stock of a rifle 
yeah, stock of a rifle peeking out from below one of the Iraqi sleeping mats. Osborne clicked the switch on his radio and said, hey, Jansen, uh, get over here now. Osborne quickly briefed him on the three men inside the small room. Jansen and Osborne immediately moved inside with their weapons raised. Wartman positioned himself in the doorway behind them. The Marines pointed their weapons at the men while Jansen screamed at them in Arabic to stand up and show him their hands. The two men on the left hesitated as they looked towards the third man who remained squirming under his blanket. Alarm bells were clanging in Jansen's uh, head. He yelled again. His instincts were screaming at him to shoot, but he didn't have the legal or moral authority to do so. Can't imagine being in that spot. Uh, it, it must have felt like time just kind of stood still. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, yeah, you know the clock is moving, but it must have had that surreal feel to it of you've got milliseconds to make a decision here that could result in your life or their life. Osborne's adrenaline surged as well. Every fiber in his body, if I can get the second page here, told him that something was wrong, but he couldn't disregard the possibility of a language or cultural gap. The two men on the left continued to steal glances at the third man as they slowly rose to comply with the Marines' instructions. Their expressions seemed resigned as they stood up and finally showed their hands. Jansen then continued screaming at the man, wrestling under the blanket. His instincts were now on fire. He was beginning to dismiss concerns about the legality of pulling the trigger. The third man finally sat up and then began to stand. And as he rose, the blanket fell from his body and he did, and he did, I'm sorry, and he seemed to drop something. He quickly dipped down to pick up a small object. Beams of white light flashed across a smooth metal grenade in the Iraq's, Iraqi's left, right hand. His left hand moved toward it. Jansen fired first. Osborne joined him a millisecond later. I mean, I'm just reading this and my drilling is just kind of firing up here. What is, uh, you know, it's easy for me to read this and be detached from it because it's another quote unquote war book. But what does that do when you, you hear those words? And I know I kind of butchered it with the cadence of everything, but man, when you hear these words and, and you can envision yourself right back, does your heart race pick up? What are you feeling right now as those words are being read? Yeah, no, it's, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a, uh, it's definitely an intense feeling that I have from that. I mean, um, I would say my heart rate is up, that you feel the adrenaline just, um, and as you were reading that, I can feel myself back in that, you know, back in that room. Um, and that's, that's the same with a lot of these stories. I mean, this one is, is obviously a little bit different because there was a reporter, yeah, a, a reporter that, that pulled together a bunch of stories and, and put it in the book. Um, which gives us a view, really, it gives me a third-person view of something I, I experience, which is a little bit different. Uh, but it's uh, it's definitely an intense feeling and, and, and a bit strange, but but helpful to go back to once in a while, too. I, I don't want to ever walk away from those experiences completely yeah. and not not have any um, concept that they happened or, or I guess, uh, just lose out on those experiences completely. Was it, um, so we know the World War II vets were infamous for, or famous for uh, not talking about anything. It was just kind of, I think, their honor code or just the way they uh, processed the war. It was like, hey, they, they, it was a good war if there is such a thing. I mean, the, the enemy was at least engaging in uh, normal terms. You know, they were not hiding. It wasn't guerrilla tactics. There was a clear winner at the end of it. As much as the Germans and uh, the Japanese had fought, they acquiesced to surrender. And then that was it. Mm -hmm. Right. And you were fighting a war of almost like a revolutionary type of scenario where it's just this is guerrilla and and 
the basis of honor is not quite there and you don't know exactly who the enemy is. And so it had that feeling, you know, maybe in somewhat echoing Vietnam, I've worked with some of those uh, vets on some of the expeditions that I've been on. And, you know, when we were in those uh, areas uh, in the Middle East together on our adventures, if you will, which was probably like a Boy Scout expedition for them, they just felt like the tension was kind of like that. You just didn't know who was your friends by day and your enemies by night. So you're in this very complicated geopolitical situation that has all kinds of sub-narratives that are going on, clannish activity. Uh, you don't know who quite your enemy and your friend is, but um, was that a hard story to go back to? Like, was there a couple of years where you're just like, you know, I don't want to really want to talk about this? Um, I would say overall, my... Um, my experience coming coming back from something like that and just jumping back into work and um, I started school and, and other things and, and family was that it wasn't that I intentionally stayed away from them, but they really didn't seem to have a place in my life. Yeah. I mean, you move, you go from that chaos and then back to something like, um, you know, home in suburbia and in a way, there's really not a place for a lot of those stories. I mean, that's one of the things I like about base camp is we can tell these types of stories and, and have these conversations without, um, without or in the correct context where it's not about glorifying what we did or what happened. It's really just about talking about this is this is a part of our world. This is a right. part of our experience, and and recognizing that without um, without completely shying away from it. Would you? Um... So your faith, I'm sure, has a big part of that because you're able to just see the larger uh, Christian worldview, if you will. So you can fit these smaller stories in the big story, the epic story, uh, the story of Christ and what he did for us on the cross and how that just shapes all that you believe. And so, you know, you and I would be on the same page with that, but I can imagine a guy that doesn't have that big meta narrative, that bigger story, walking into some of these smaller stories. These smaller stories can just, not that this was a small story, because it is a big story, but it's not the biggest story. I mean, it could just swallow you where you just lose all sense of context and your compass just kind of gets skewed. And you just, I mean, you probably have friends that have come out of a similar experience that you've had that probably feel a little bit, you know, lost right now, I'd imagine. And then some of them that are doing remarkably well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I would say it's, uh, so I'm going to bring up Lord of the Rings here. I thought you would like that. I, yeah, know, we've got, I know we've got second some... Second only to the Bible. <laughs> right. I know we've got some uh, Lord of the Rings nerds that are <laughs> big fans of base yeah. Um So I, I've just recently started, it was part of my quarantine uh, book, book list. I, I read The Hobbit and now I'm working through some of the other ones. Okay. But, um, I think I would kind of relate it to Bilbo Baggins at the end of The Hobbit. When he comes back, he's been on this epic adventure where he's, um, you know, through a lot of stuff. He's gone and, and fought the dragon and um, did a lot of things, found out a lot about himself. And he comes back, and it, there's not really much about it at the end of the book, but basically he comes back and he finds out that his relatives are auctioning off his possessions. and yeah. they he's dead. Right. They've moved on, yeah. basically. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's part of what it is for a lot of us is we, you know, in a way the world has moved on in a way, um, we have moved on those who, those of us who experienced that and trying to connect that back in. And so that's where I would tie faith back in is that for me, that's been a constant. Now my faith has evolved over time just because I've had to look at, I mean, the faith of someone who hasn't experienced, uh, combat or war is different than somebody who has. It's just not that we don't believe in the same things, but you have to reconcile um, what you've seen in the the evil in this world versus um, your experiences, and that right. that sometimes is 
it's still, I mean, it's still something I'm working through. I've, I've, and something I've talked to a lot of people about because it's, uh, it can be challenging. And that, I mean, that goes far outside of combat or wartime experiences. I think for people who experience a lot of the evil in this world, connecting that back in with their faith is a, a critical part of that. Right. That uh, evil does exist, and it has a main part to play in this grand scheme of things that we call life, uh, and people have a hard time labeling that. Uh, and so they think that therapy is, is, you know, we can just counsel people out of this evilness or uh, go the opposite end and just fight violence with uh, violence. But, you know, since the beginning of time, really, evil has been a part of our story. There's always been a villain. Every good story, every good book, everything that's worth reading or watching always has the hero the villain, and then maybe a bunch of people that are kind of in between, and then you mm-hmm. have the guide and all these different dynamics in the story. And so uh, it's really helpful for, I think, men to realize that when you just oppose uh, our life against the bigger story, evil has a part to play in that story. And I find that most men, uh, quite frankly, are surprised or are underestimating the presence of evil. Uh, and part of my story, which is not, I'm not here to tell that, but with Steve's story, you know, this evil, it's, it's right in front of you. You have people that don't uh, wish you well, and I'm being very understated by saying that. They want to exit you off the planet, and so you're left with the tension of this story that we just read, which is one of many stories that are in there where evil is now staring you in the face. It has a name. It has an agenda. It's incredibly harmful, but I think us as civilians, speaking for most of us that are viewing We've never had that type of punctuated uh, period of time in our life where evil and good had a stark contrast and life and death were happening. Uh, And we'll draw some military parallels to civilian life that uh, guys like you will understand much more uh, than those that uh, that happened. But I think it would help a man or his family, whoever's viewing right now, to understand that you are at war, whether you wish it or no. Uh, the enemy's army is marching on you. It's back to the whole Isengard thing. You know, there is a a strong uh, negative force that is alive and well in this universe. And if you cannot get your mind wrapped around that there is an ancient evil, uh, there is a name for it, Satan, devil, whichever name you want to, Lucifer, and uh, he has been uh, with us since the beginning of time and even prior to that, um, and he does not wish you well, and he will do everything he can to combat against your soul, similar to what you would see on a, a battlescape. And it's his job, if he can't kill you, which I think, quite frankly, is not as advantageous to him, he'd love to wound you because wounded people wound other people, right? Heal people, heal other people. And so uh, I'm just really uh, encouraged that you came through a really hard spot in your life, uh, and then even after you know, having served, but your faith is intact. You have the bigger story that you can still fall back on, but you probably saw both extremes. You probably saw guys find faith, if you will, or faith finding them in the trenches. And then you probably maybe saw some people that just kind of lost it. You're like, I can't reconcile this kind of evil with how can God be good? And yet there'd be so much evil and seemingly evil is winning all the time. Like, what would you Mm -hmm. say to something like that? Um, well, could you show the first picture there? Yeah, let's put that first uh, first slide up here to give some Um, context. Yeah, so I I think, you know, this is a picture of my squad. Um, Those, well, mostly uh, the uh, men in my squad, and then we had a few Iraqi soldiers that were attached to us in this picture. Um, But to go back to your question, I think um, everybody, you know, you look at whatever experience you have in life, you look at it through the lens of your past experiences and beliefs and, and things like that. So sometimes those, you know, combat or traumatic experiences, whatever they are, 
um, can solidify those beliefs or sometimes they can just blow them out of, uh, you know, out of existence because they're, they just go against whatever that was. So I, I would agree. I mean, everybody, and, and truthfully, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like my faith was never shaken by these sorts of things or that my faith um, wasn't um, tested at times because it definitely was then and has been since. Um, but I think uh, one of the things that, you know, just looking at a picture like this, that everybody processes those things differently. And that's one of the things that I think is important as we talk about, you know, veterans from either combat or, or whatever situation, it's hard to, to, to um, use one person's story and just apply that across the board to everyone right. else. And that's one of the things that has, has been a struggle for me because I'll see how someone else has handled something or didn't handle something and then try to relate that to my story. And it's been, you know, it, it takes some processing to do that. So sure. I think it's, um, but, but even, you know, some of the guys that are in this picture, um, we're still going through that together today. I mean, some guys are further along in their face. Some people have not, um, or have struggled there in, in some people, it's not even a part of the conversation, but, um, but I think what is important is that the conversation is ongoing and it's not something that you just, either leave out of it um, because like you said there are um, it whether we want to admit it or not our spirituality is an important part of who we are as humans and it's something that we need to address in the context of the larger things going on in the world yeah yeah for sure you can't dissect those those are two uh, interchangeable ones so explain a little bit what's happening here this is um, obviously your your squad mm -hmm. And I, what I love about this picture, we talked about this a little bit beforehand. I love this because it's, it's emblematic of what we're trying to do with grace explorations and taking some of the military metaphors, particularly units, and describing how men interact with each other. So, I mean, if you go back to Israeli times, there's a couple millennia worth of information here. But um, the Army, if I can just speak in a general term, I know it doesn't apply necessarily to Marines. Let's use it for Marines. We'll, we'll, sure. we'll get rid of the army guys just for, just for this window. Let's just say with the Marines, I mean, they understand how men interact in different units. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we do at base camp is a company size, 7,550 guys, uh, either in one or two sessions at a brewery. And there's some beautiful things that can happen with that, um, that can't necessarily happen in a smaller unit. And you'll find that a lot of stories that are being written are about a certain company. Obviously the most famous would be, you know, Bravo company and some of the series that came off of that. Um, but there's some things that'll happen in this smaller unit that can't happen in the larger units. One of which is very obvious, or it should be obvious is that these guys will live and die for each other because they care about each other and they care about each other because they know each other. And so this story, this picture in particular is a great example of why we keep telling guys, get into a small group, get into a small group, get into that, uh, that squad or better yet, you know, the, the fire team, the four person squad or the four person team, which is a couple of these are actually in this squad. Platoons are great 15 to 30 or whatever, but really life change happens in that eight to 10 or even preferably uh, more specifically four to five guys. You, you won't care about the guy next to you, how he's doing spiritually or how he's doing with life. If you don't know that guy and you're not going to know that guy, unless you're starting to do life with that guy. So there's nothing wrong with Bible study curriculum. There's nothing wrong with all the wealth of information that's out there. But if that's all you're doing is gathering to gather information and expecting transformation and expecting community to build, camaraderie um, or the core, if you will, uh, it's, it's just not going to happen. You have to start doing life together. And these guys were put in a position where literally 
your lives are dependent upon each other. Mm -hmm. You're in a firefight. The guy goes down next to you. Now your probability of going down, getting killed, MIA, KIA, whatever is dramatically increased. So you're thinking about the fact that we need to stay alive. Like we need to do this together. And we don't, as civilians, we can't contextualize that because first we're not living in the big story. We don't think there's an enemy. We don't think that we can play the part of the hero that's a little nuanced. Maybe that's not the correct word for it, but we don't realize we're on a journey and we don't understand that community is absolutely core to what we do. And if you have secrets and if you're living isolated, I think this whole cultural chaos that's going now on is, is basically like a wolf and it's just running the herd and it's just scattering people and it's picking off marriages. It's picking off companies. It's picking off individuals that were maybe a little weak to begin with, and now they've got them on the run, right? You've got this cultural chaos, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of uh, delusion and just distractions, and it's easy to get picked off. But I love this idea about the band of a, of a brotherhood, of this idea of fighting for each other. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, um, were these some of the closest connections that you've had in your life? And I know you've had various stages to your life of school and college and then work and family church but how did this did this feel different than anything you've experienced to date in sure. your life um so i think two things one uh one of the things you've said a lot at base camp that i really think resonates with this is that uh we either journey together or die alone yeah and i think that i think you're using a mo mountain climbing metaphor um, but i can relate it very closely to this where there is no i mean unless you watch rambo or some of them you know superhero or uh action movies from the 80s there's no time but they're all based in, on true stories well, right uh <laughs> there's no time in the military where you will ever do anything alone where you're not you know where you are on Sandless your own climbing yeah right um and so i think that's what's important here is that you know the thing is you come back from an experience like this and you're you quickly are alone because you're not um you know you're not with the same people and and it, it over time, I think those of us who are in this uh, in this picture who know each other, we've been more deliberate about getting together and, and connecting with each other for, because for so long it was so effortless. And, and truthfully, we wanted to be further apart. We were all crammed into one little room and we were sick of sleeping with it in the same room as each other. Um, it's almost like having so, little kids. You know, they tire you out and yeah. you don't realize how beautiful and blessed you're at no, the time. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's empty nest. But, you're like, oh, shoot. Yeah, you want nothing more than to yeah. be on your own. But that, that can be very isolating. And I think for, um, you know, what, whatever stage you're at in life, it's really important to have people. And in those things or those people might change over time. It may not be the same person from the day you're, you know, 10 years old till, till you retire. Um, but it's really important to have those types of people in your life who, who have those shared common experiences and beliefs. Um, and so my, that connection with those guys, I mean, it is, it's funny. We'll get together, um, at least have us, uh, once a year or so. And, um, you're all from West instant, Michigan or, uh, for the most part, that was part of the, you know, part of the story is that we're, we're reservists. So we are basically based geographically. Now we had a few guys that were, um, attachments that were, uh, from Tennessee or other places, but for the most part, most guys are still in the general area. Yeah. So we can get together sometimes and it, and it's great, but it's, it's amazing how quickly we're back, uh, in the same dynamics, good and bad, to be honest. Um, but we, because like a of high that shared, reunion. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, because of that shared experience that we're there and it, in that has started to evolve over time, which has been really good where we can be a little bit more real with each other and dig into some of the, the deeper stuff without just, uh, you know, the, a lot of it is just joking and laughing about stuff that happened and things like that. But, um, we're able to just be real with each other too, which is really important.
they must have had some just some core principles, you know, that you just kind of stuck with and, and lived by. But well, a lot of it seemed to be organic. You know, it wasn't like you're just going to recite this stuff. You just were doing it. Right, right. No, because, I mean, go back to like the core values of the Marine Corps, honor, courage, and commitment. Those yeah. are very important things I think anybody in life should, you know, should strive for those. However, those are ideals. They're yep. not really something that you put in it. Well, you can live your life much differently than those, even being a part of the, um, you know, the Marine Corps or some, some other organization like that. So I think that's one of the important, excuse me, the important pieces is there's, you know, there's what you set out to do and then there's what you actually end up doing. And sometimes those are very different. And that's part of, um, you know, that's part of a lot of people's experience too, that you, you join for, um, very, you know, patriotic or altruistic reasons with outside of yourself, um, there are better paying jobs than joining the military as a private um, or, or whatever. But then sometimes those collide with the reality of the world and what that is. Mm. And, and I think that that can relate to a lot of things in life. It's not just the military. And, and so um, so where that plays out in groups like this is really important to be able to um, to process that. And, uh, and, and, you know, for a sense, or I really, I think, just understand it and understand that even if it didn't work out exactly how you wanted, there's still grace for that. And it, there's a lot more out there that we're called to and and can pursue that as well. So would you say it's true for you? I mean, you read a lot of these stories and after talking to a lot of Marines and soldiers, you get this idea that especially during a firefight or when there's actual combat, when the bullets are flying and think there's just chaos that's settling in, these ideals are important, right? I mean, the mantras that we have and the mottos that we live by, but really in the heat of the moment, you're just, you're fighting to obviously stay alive, but you're there, you're fighting for the guys that are surrounding you. Mm-hmm. You're, that's every, every story I've ever read, every guy I've ever interviewed, it's always, it comes down to when the lightning strikes and the thunder rolls and the bullets start flying, you're fighting for the guy next to you. And mm-hmm. I think that's the unfortunate thing that I'm seeing a lot in culture at large with just everybody it seems like every person's out for themselves like there's no cohesiveness anymore there's nothing that unifies everything is uh divisive i mean it's amazing how much uh energy we put into just simple words now we've weaponized everything right um and it would be great to have just something that is so large and i think that's where the christian faith can help us to rally i mean they just had a a a very large uh, rally that took place in washington dc It'll be a little bit after uh, this particular episode, but it was this idea that, you know, there's a bigger story that's going on here, and we have to keep our eyes on that bigger story. The big story is the gospel. That's the biggest story, and every other story has got to fit into that, and every other story needs to partner with that story. Otherwise, it just becomes another rabbit trail. Was there any disillusionment on your part? Um, I know that, and we worked when I was on my adventures around the world, you know, we had security details with us, but there was a couple of Vietnam vets that were with us, and they're always, uh, the conversations were tinged with a lot of uh, disillusionment of, uh, the the cause was itself was noble, right? You're doing what your country is asking you to do. Um, In the case of Vietnam, it was to stop communism from spreading, which, you know, on its face value is a good thing. Do you have any uh, disillusionment or just a sense of, um, you know, maybe the objective, like you alluded to it, this mm-hmm. idea of what you what you think you're going to be sent for, and then maybe what is actually happening, which applies itself to all of life, right? We have this mental moving image of what we think we're on, going back to Bilbo's example. You know, he just thinks he's mm-hmm. going on a grand adventure, has a little light clue that, my gosh, you're going to be going into the bowels of a mountain, and you are going to face a living, breathing dragon. 
that is frozen an entire generation of people that can't get their mind wrapped around going back to this mountain and getting back their space, getting back their their mountain, uh, their heritage. Do you feel any of that sense as a, as a returning Marine um, of disillusionment of like, man, what did we really go there for and, and what did it really mean and what was it really worth? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first, you brought up Vietnam veterans and I think it's important to just state, first of all, like I can't imagine the experience they went through coming back from the war when they were horrible. Um, and, and I think this country has come a long way since Absolutely. then. And we were, you know, we were welcomed back with like 8,000 people in the Delta Plex in Grand Rapids. Wow. With, when um, your unit came back. Yeah. Yep. And, and, uh, that was a very different experience. So in, and if you think about it, you know, Vietnam veterans, most of them were drafted. They, yep. you know, they just, all they did was not, you know, break the law by skipping out on the draft. And so to, to come back to open hostility and things like that, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. And I, I feel for them because that's been a very different experience for us. Cause you guys were, um, I mean, you were reservists for the most part, right? right they activated yep. reserve units national. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just, it was people that were already in the system that were already sure. in the military. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody, almost everybody that I was with joined during a time of war joined after nine eleven. Yeah. Um, so we all knew what the, you know, our intentions were, but that wasn't the case for a lot of people. But going back to your question, I think there's definitely been some um, soul searching. I mean, it happens when, uh, you know, when people in your union are killed. I mean, you really wonder, what are we here for? If you think about the reasons you might join the Marine Corps or the military in general, but especially the the infantry, it's typically not to provide safety and security operations for tribes in some other country that... Um, you know, that may be on your side, maybe not be. Could change uh, from day to day. Right, right. And it did at times. Um, however, so, there, I mean, it's something you have to wrestle with. And I think that's where a lot of um, guys can, can str- or I'm sorry, men or women or anyone could struggle with uh, that sort of thing because it you really have to, um, it, it, it's not a clear-cut answer. I remember the first day we, we arrived at Camp Fallujah before we went to our area of operations. There was a, a colonel, I think it was Joe Nichols, and he's kind of a legend in the Marine Corps for getting wounded and coming back like six weeks later to the same job. And mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, he was the the uh, commander of the area at the time, and and he told us like if you're searching, if you're looking for black and white answers here, good guys, bad guys, you're in the wrong place. We don't have that. We've got people that sort of support us and can help us. We've got people that hate us and also don't, you know, fight against the other people that are sort of supporting us. We've got to figure out, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. We need to figure out a way to, to make it a difference here. And so this is your one of your first talks when you're coming in. Right. This, this was like the day your, before we went to initiation. our forward operating base. Wow. So um, that had to be a little unsettling because it's I mean, you probably kind of knew some of that, but right. this is a little more nuanced than what you gave it to be. Sure. Yep. It, it, I mean, it was, but also it was it was the reality of this, you know, what was going on there, and I think that was important. Just confronting the brutal truth and not trying to sugarcoat it um, or simplify something that can't be simplified. So, yeah. all that being said, I think it's a. Um, I mean, it's still a, a, a challenge today sometimes because you see, even since we've left, we saw a lot of improvement um, while we were there working with the local tribes, and they really stood up and helped to support kicking out um, the insurgents. But since then, ISIS came over, you know, years later, ISIS came back in. They were driven back out by the Iraqi forces, some American support. And now it's, I mean, in a way, you you hope that you gave some, um, gave some support to people who are trying to 
really um, live out their own destiny. I, I yeah. think that's what it was. And, and I don't know that I would change much, to be honest, even though that's something I've had to wrestle with as well. Mm. How do you see this part of your story? Like, I think that's where a lot of people struggle with um, stories that don't seem to fit into the the narrative thread of their life. Like, yeah. We all yeah. have episodes that we're like, man, if I wrote my story, like my life as a book, I would not have written that chapter because it seems incongruent or disconnected from the rest. Mm-hmm. Have you reached a point in your journey now where you can see in some ways like this had to happen? Not that it was an awful thing, but there were some difficult things here to bring you to the place where you are now. Because quite frankly, sure. this interview probably wouldn't even be happening right. if it wasn't mm-hmm. for some of those things. And then the subsequent stuff that you had to journey through coming home and transitioning into what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you go to the next picture there? Um, so this picture I've got included just because it kind of gives a snapshot of where I was at the time in the middle of it, in the thick of it. Like I, you could see this, uh, and this actually fits into the story right. that I just read. This was the first, um, example that was in, in what you read where, you know, he surgeon drove up on us in a, in a palm grove, um, jumped out and, and was shooting an AK 47. We all shot him. Um, but it just kind of, uh, for me, it, it like signifies the crazy stuff that was going on at the time. And it doesn't fit anywhere within my story um, in a lot of ways, other than the fact that it's an experience that I can relate to. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm I'm more able to relate to crazy things that happen to other people, whether combat or war or anything else. Um, I can kind of see myself in that story or in mm. that situation just because I, I, you know, I've been through something like this. So I, I, I remember... Um, it was years after we were back and, uh, my marriage was falling apart. Things were not good. I was just really struggling and just really asking God, like, why on earth did this, why would you send me to this place to, to experience these things? You know, everything has gone poorly in Iraq since then. Like, what was all this for? And I truly don't know the answer. I think I have more confidence now that there is something, um, something, in that experience that, you know, brings out something in me and also allows me to connect to others and, and relate to others in ways that I wouldn't have in the, in the past. Wow. Um, that's huge. So it, it gave you uh, a very precious gift, which is empathy. Right? Sure. Which it, it, You're able and to it's taken a long time to uh, unpack that empathy because I think one of the things um, that helps you succeed in a situation like you this. You can't have empathy. You, you just, have absolutely zero. Like I remember situations like where... Um, where I, in my brain, it registered, this is a sad, this is sad, or this is, I really feel, should feel bad about this, but I didn't like I, it was, it, that part of me was dormant at the time. And, Mm. and I think that's what, um, a lot of us struggle with. Did you feel like that just went away? Like, you know, a part of you died that was good, you know, in a tough situation and will you ever get that back? And I think that's one of the things that, you know, through, um, through the healing processes, you could see that those things start to come back. And that, that, I mean, that's what really gives me hope. Would you say this is true? Again, I've read this over and over again, and it's something that's, it seems like it's in every war movie as well, but it's this idea that uh, every man dies in battle. It's just that some come home. There's something uh, that happens with the human condition that uh, even though the cause may be noble, right? Where you're literally defending your own life. It's either theirs or yours, or they have taken uh, the fight to you, or you had all the moral and legal authority to do what you needed to do as a counter um, action to whatever had been done previously. But 
would you say that part of that's true in the sense that it's a sacred thing to take somebody's life? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of uh, first responders that we work with, you know, that's um, that's heavy. You know, because you've uh, that person has now gone into another dimension, and you were uh, part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> almost as sacred as a, a doctor, you know, bringing in a baby into a world. There's something sacred about these rites of passage, and um, you know, it's a heavy weight, even though the situation may be noble, or as we know, you know, during firefights, especially in the fog of war, there's a lot of innocent life that's taken. That's just, uh, I, I guess, in a callous way, we could say that that's collateral damage. But do you feel like a part of you may uh, just be still on that battlefield, you know, that you're trying, I wouldn't say trying to get back, because Christ does make all things whole. But man, there must have been some kind of shattering of some level of innocence there. Because this is not a typical West Michigan upbringing, right? <laughs> right. You know, you go to mm-hmm. church, you work on the farm, or you do this or you do that, and, and, and it's pretty, pretty static. You know, it's not super dynamic. There's a trajectory of your life. This is in a foreign country. You're placed in situations that um, are, are almost surreal. It's like, is this a movie or is this real life? Because this script has gone crazy. Uh, do you feel like there's something that was lost, you know, in that regard? Um, well, like I said, I think there's something... There are parts, in order to really function in an environment like that, there are parts of you that have to go dormant or just can't be addressed at the time. Like yeah. I said, that empathy and um, a lot of the emotions of it. And, and that's a big part of military training is just kind of uh, um, compartmentalizing maybe those sorts of things. Um, I think it's really getting back to those that that is the the difficult part or, or opening those boxes back up eventually. Right. And, and re- truthfully, I had no experience even doing that even before going into the military. I was, I avoided any sort of feeling or emotion as much as I could and just pushed on without it. Um, so I don't know if I would say that, you know, some people don't come back other than those who are, you know, truly killed. However, I would say everybody or most probably struggle with that. What does it mean to then, you know, operate in a completely different situation right. in a, you know, civilian environment where um, the rules are different, the level of intensity is different. Um, in some ways, like being in combat simplifies life. You know, they're trying to kill us, we're trying to kill them, let's work it out. And that uh, it's not a, always that simple in other situations where no. you do bring in feelings and emotions and, and all these other things that you want to be respectful of, but it do, doesn't always line up that way. Hmm. Um, when I was in high school, we were required to read uh, All Quiet uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is mm-hmm. perhaps arguably one of the greatest uh, war books ever written. And it was a true account. The Nazis hated it because it was written by a German soldier in the trenches of World War One, And it was a, it was a brilliant writer. And I, I can't say his name, and if I could, I'd butcher it. But uh, he had just such power with words, but he talked about how at the first shriek of the shell, and there was a lot of bombardment. I mean, it was mm. a very static war. It was, you're just fighting over mud. I mean, it was not like this at all where you're moving and you're going, you know, it was just fighting in these trenches. And he said at that first shriek of the shell, uh, just whistling overhead, uh, alluding to the same thing that you were saying, he said they had to become like animals. That animal mm-hmm. instinct had to take over. Their humanity had to take a backseat because it's the only way that they could survive. And he, he felt like it was actually, uh, it was protective and it was the way that they actually conversely and paradoxically stayed human. By becoming an animal, they stayed human because that's how you have to function in that world. And he talked about this idea of uh, the soul 
of the soldier at that time going into what he would call like a winter slumber. Like it was mm. winter set in, settled in, everything went, you used the word dormant, um, and you just have this numbing effect where you have to do what you have to do, and part of that is becoming an animal. Mm -hmm. You crawl on the ground, you hovel in the trench when the, the bombardment's going on, and then you pop up out of the parapet and you just charge forward, and hopefully you're not gonna get mowed down, but, um, you know, that's, and then the tension of that, so then he talked about as that book further developed, and it's just a masterpiece, but he talked about going to visit his mom. And here he is, you know, the front was not that far, right? I mean, it's mostly fought in France and Belgium at that point, so he could be home, he could hop on a train and be home by the end of the day. I mean, it was crazy. A, a British soldier could be fighting in the front lines, jump over the channel and be in a theater that night. I mean, nobody knew warfare like that before. And so he came back home, and, and then he would talk to the village elders, and they would pontificate over what they would do, and how's it going in the trenches there, you know, and something with a false sense of bravado. And he was just like, you guys have no clue the madness that uh, we are holding at bay, just the rage of an entire generation of soldiers that is just wasting away for uh, ideologies that they don't really quite frankly care about. They're just trying to come home. And then he talked about a little bit of that tension that you hear from soldiers as well of this idea that, part of him actually enjoyed being mm -hmm. in the front because it was clear and he was fighting for something that he did, you know, somewhat believe in, but it was more than that. It was transcendent that he wanted to experience that brotherhood. Um, and I just a very poignant, uh, powerful story that develops over several, uh, chapters, but it just stuck with me, this idea that during, uh, times of war, during times of trauma, that the soul itself actually goes into a winter slumber. It actually falls asleep. It mm -hmm. becomes numb. And maybe that's a challenge of reentry, and it has a lot of parallels to what we, because we deal with a lot of, um, I know there's a nuance between PTS and PTSD, and I know as it relates to military life, that has to be more acutely handled, uh, especially for those that are actively serving for civilians, maybe not so much, but it's this idea that uh, how do you wake up this um, sleeping dragon? How do you wake up this soul that is in sleep? Because it had to be to survive and to do what it had to do and see what it had to see. And uh, a lot of first responders that we're now journeying with, quite frankly, uh, feel to me like soldiers. In your case, a Marine, where it's just, uh, it feels like war. Mm -hmm. You just don't know what's gonna happen and everything's triggering and uh, there feels like there's a lot of angst out there on both sides of that coin. But what helped you to kind of get to that place where your soul was able to enter spring again, where you were able to come back alive? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't remember that part of the book. I guess I didn't, I had to read it in high school also. And I guess I just, it was long, I, I actually reread read it like one. two years ago. <laughs> I might have to check There's it out. language in there as an adult. Yeah. You would, it's, it's unbelievable. The grasp of the human language that he sure. had, but he just brought, it was all poetic and it was, you just felt this sense of, of spatiality of distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, actually, could you go to the, this can be the last picture, the next one here. So um, this picture, one that I included, it was just, uh, it kind of represents for me. So this was in the same village where, you know, the excerpt from the book was. Um, and it really represents for me kind of what it, you know, the coming out of the chaos and coming home. And I, I like that metaphor of kind of the winter in your soul when yeah. Um, you just, yeah, things just have to be dormant. You can't, you can't. It overwhelm you. Right. You couldn't. Um, function in a situation like that if you were allowed to feel all the feelings that you should be at the time. Um, but I think the, I think part of the, 
the message that we get or that is kind of is ingrained in people is that, okay, you know, there's enough war movies where the veteran comes home and isn't the same and he's cracked up and he just doesn't, you know, never is the same person. And that, that was something I always hated when, um, if I ever heard like, just not the same. And first of all, no kidding. No, other, no, neither is your son who went away to college for four years. Right. Like, he's not the same person as when yeah. he started. Like, um, but I think there's also that, um, there's not always a clear path to, to start to experience those things and, and for it to be okay. So for me, um, part of it, I think was having children because that, that was just a totally different situation. And, and Did seeing you have any them kids start when you were over there? Or no, there? I didn't. Nope. Okay. Um, not until a year and a half or so after we got back. Um, but that was part of the process for me is to start to see how they process things. And first of all, realizing that I need, I had some work to do in order to be able to relate to them and, and understand. And, and quite honestly, um, I mentioned earlier, but it was really a part, a point where, because I wasn't really, I guess, on thawing or whatever metaphor you want to use, um, that wasn't the only reason, but m- m- things between my wife and I really fell apart dramatically and drastically, and it was ugly and brutal. And um, in going through that, I mean, really impacted every part of who I was, but it forced me to start to see that there were things that I, or it, it was by no choice of my own, but I couldn't push all this stuff aside anymore. I couldn't, yeah. you know, I couldn't it was front and center. Hide it. I couldn't in, in really force me to confront it in a way that I hadn't before, or even thought I could, um, was to come through something like that. So that was part of it too. And I, I wouldn't recommend that route for anybody, but that's, um, that's part of it. it for me, it was, you know, finding the humility that I didn't have it all figured out, that I wasn't untouched by this or that I, you mm-hmm. know, I wasn't somebody who could just go through everything and not be bothered by it. Cause that was the, what I wanted to, the front I wanted to portray to people. Um, but eventually that all collapsed and I really just had to confront that, you know, these feelings that I'm feeling are real. I've got to deal with them. There's a reason why they're there and start to work through that sort of thing. Yeah. One thing that I've admired about you and your journey is, uh, I know we both know Matt Kenny and Matt is one of our soul surgeons and just shared at one of our base camps uh, at the barn here just, uh, a little bit ago. And you've been really wise to, uh, find those guys out and to track with them. I know you've been in a couple of retreats mm-hmm. with him and I think, uh, I just commend you for that because that takes humility. Pride, pride says I'm the cowboy, I'm the lone ranger, I don't need anybody's help, I'm a self-contained, self-governing unit, thank you very much, and then just <laughs> yep. do your thing. And I think the cowboy mythos is alive and well still, where it's the, the man with no name, you know, he just kind of wanders into the story and cleans up all the bad guys, but you never get to know this guy, and then he goes off into isolation again, and he lives this singular, insular, uh, insulated life, and I just want to commend you for opening up your life, and I know that part of that was just the pain threshold was such that, um, you had to get help. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can commend me all you want, but I really was at a point where I, so I met Matt as a counselor. I mean, yeah. I went to him as a counselor, not knowing him before, um, on a recommendation. But you still had a choice. Else, you could have, um, mm-hmm. you could have ended the story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of vets, a lot of people will just choose that. Just stop the story and mm-hmm. the pain. And we all know what that looks like. Yeah. Yep. Or just continue living as if it wasn't an issue. I yeah. mean, that was, but, um, now Medicaid, whatever think, you need to uh, do. I think for me, maybe getting glimpses of what life could be with parts of me being unthawed, um, gave me some, you know, so much hope that there's something better out here. I don't need to live in this place where I control everything and, and try to, um, 
try to control the narrative, it, there's a bigger story, like you said, and um, and finding that out and finding wise people who can point you in the right direction there may, makes all the difference with that sort of thing. Would you agree that control is basically, it's an illusion? Yes. I think control in the short term is possible. Long term, it, it yeah. <laughs> will fall away. Which probably felt a lot, looking back now in retrospect, of just this idea that we can control the situation and you realize, mm-hmm. man, there's just a lot of factors I didn't even know about. Right, right. That and, and preceded I think, you by thousands of years and will live on for thousands of years. And I think that is one of the things that I've seen, you know, looking at what we're going through right now with the pandemic, uh, just the other things that are going on politically and everything control has so much to do or that I see people trying to control what it is not being controlled or doing certain things. And it's on all ends of the political spectrum. Um, I think most of the things that people are arguing about are about control. It's not about an actual response or the right thing to do in most situations. Yeah. Well, it's, it's human nature, right? When things are out of control, we go to control mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Um, we have one more slide here. Did you want to put that yeah, up? Sure. The, uh, maybe you can talk about that and then we'll close here. Yeah, yep. So this is the Amir or uh, another image of that first slide we shared. Um, and so this was just something that we did a couple of years ago to kind of uh, um, immortalize that uh, that first picture. So it was mm. a guy named uh, Chris Laporte, um, who was an artist that did this for us. And uh, I, think, I think it was great, first of all, because he captured the same, the same image. Uh, we were able to add one of the guys in my squad in uh, who wasn't in the picture because he had been sent home earlier in the deployment. His uh, his wife was in a really bad car accident, so he, mm. had to, he had to head home. So it was great to have that. And really just um, for me, it was a way to bring, you know, like I said, I had pushed those wartime experiences out and just moved on and, and or <laughs> thought I had moved on for, for many years. Um, but for me, this was an opportunity to kind of bring that back in. I mean, it's hanging in my living room right now just because it's, it is a part of me. It's, uh, you know, and I think that's important for all of us that have these sorts of experiences, whatever they are, they are a part of you, whether you wanted them or not, they right. are. And, um, and just really owning that and being, uh, being able to own that part of your story is really important. Well, one last thing, and you're uh, typically Dutch. We don't handle compliments real well, so just take this. This will require humility in your part, but I really love seeing your journey. I mean, here, this is a warrior, and this is his fellow warrior tribe members, and what I love, what God seems to be doing in your life, which is also emblematic, I think, of the age that you're moving into is taking that warrior who is kind of a singular combatant, right? You know, it's, it's mostly about him. It's checking the boxes. A lot of guys in their twenties and thirties are consumed with building the resume, checking the boxes, climbing the ladder, whatever it is, moving up the military rank. And then you kind of get in your mid forties, you hit a little bit of a crisis point, you know, and then you get more into your forties and then fifties and you develop this idea of what does it look like to become a king, which is generative, which uh, you've done now with your family. You have children, you have a legacy, your marriage is intact. And so the kingdom that God has given Ron is, is solid right now. Is it perfect? No. Did the whole story play out the way you wanted it to that led to your ultimate redemption? No. But in a way, I think there's enough humility with you and your story where you're like, yeah, maybe our our marriage wouldn't be as strong as it was right now if it wasn't for some of those things that hit. Or I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I hadn't gone through these experiences that were not just emblematic, but were literally in warrior mode. So I just want to commend you with that. I think that's God's ultimate objective is to take guys and not temper that warrior spirit, but make their story bigger than just them. Like you said, part of your healing, it came through that generative process of having children. Mm -hmm. That's what a king does. He creates people he leads people and it's less about him or fighting these certain battles and your kids uh divinely um that you 
really humane to have them as a blessing for you, right? You want someone to take care of you when you're older. We don't necessarily think about that, but those are some things that's legacy. You know, who's going to carry on the name? Who's going to, you know, carry on this bloodline? They now have been part of your healing process. They've given you a larger purpose to live. And so I want to commend you and those that are viewing is uh, to view yourself in that, that royal metaphor that really what you're about is about leading others and about building kingdoms where you can, whether it's with your family, whether it's with your marriage, your ministry, and never forgetting that nobility. I love that part of uh, the Braveheart movie where um, there's a certain dialogue, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's essentially this idea that the Braveheart character played by uh, Mel Gibson was essentially saying two things at once that seem to be directly opposing each other, but they can live in tension because they're both true. He was basically saying, yes, I am noble and I'm also savage because he could speak Latin, which is a mm -hmm. noble language, but he's also savage. You know, he's a Highlander and uh, they're fighting guerrilla tactics. And I love that about a man of God that he can be both. Uh, David, uh, yeah, he had a warrior part of him, man. I mean, he could cut off heads. There's a, there was a savage part of him that could do what was uh, needed to be done in the moment, but there was also something very noble about him where when he made his biggest mistakes, that's the beauty of David's story, is he could humble himself and say, God, uh, I don't have control of this situation, and could humble himself and never lost the ability, unlike almost every other king of Israel or Judah who gave into some form of idolatry, David's heart always seemed to be after God. And I think that's part of your story is uh, you've always recognized the big story and you've always kept your eye on the target. So I'm excited to see where your story goes. I think it's fantastic, you know, that your family's together, your marriage is stronger than it's probably ever been. There's some really good chapters ahead in your life. And I'm grateful that we could step into this chapter here together tonight. Yeah, thank you. You bet. So for those of you that are viewing, um, we appreciate you spending some time with us. This is a great story. Can you hold that book up again? If sure. uh, this is of interest to you, it's a great book, Fallujah Awakens. And um, it's essentially the chronicle of, of your unit's um, deployment and this particular scene that we read in this particular chapter to kind of give some context of what we're doing. But uh, if you are struggling with trauma and all of its uh, variations, uh, we would just encourage you. There's a great uh, story by C.S. Lewis called The Chronicles of Narnia, and he also was a World War I vet. And he created this uh, mythological world called Narnia, and he did it so beautifully well. I think it was actually cathartic. He was probably channeling something he wasn't even aware of. He was an orphan, or virtually one, was estranged from his dad, lost his mother at an early age, was in a battalion in World War I that saw... Uh, heavy decimation. Uh, there was a guy that basically a bombardment and the guy next to him turned into uh, a red mist. There was nothing left and he got some shrapnel, went home, and then subsequently years later began writing this story. But he had this whole uh, character development where there was a witch and everything she touched in this mythological world of Narnia would be frozen. And I don't know if he intended for this or if it was uh, intuitive or if it was... Um, something that was not even he was aware of but i look at that as trauma and so this witch character would come into these scenes throughout uh, the book specifically the lion the witch and the wardrobe and everything she touched was frozen and all and the season of narnia was stuck in winter it was in slumber and uh, there wasn't any movement but then this other character named aslan um, came into the scene and wherever aslan appeared um, spring came and all of a sudden, uh, this thawing came into view, and spring would come, and the birds would start uh, chirping again, and the flowers would bloom, and the trees would bud, and things would become green again. And so I kind of like to say it this way, and then I'm done. 
uh, is this idea that it's always winter, never spring until you hear the words of the king. And I think that is emblematic of the words of Christ, that uh, Jesus has to call out to you from your own grave, from your own tomb, through that stone that you think is the end because it feels like a tomb or it doesn't feel like anything at all because you're dead and you're numb and your soul is in a winter slumber. Um, it's just to hear, to ask God to speak to you in a way that you can understand, that you can hear through the stone of your own heart, of your own situation, and you can hear Christ the King calling you back from the dead. And maybe that's what this whole story is about tonight. Uh, you could have easily perished on the battlefield. You know guys that went that didn't come home. And we want people to come home. We want men to come home. We want marriages to come home. We want ministries to come home. We want nations to come home. Everybody on a deep subterranean level is yearning for resurrection. It's probably why the last of the Marvel series did so well because it brought back this collective sense that there is a return. There is this massive cosmic resurrection of all the pieces coming back together. But we want that for everyone. And so to do that, you have to do it in community. We're one tribe amongst many, but we would be honored if you could partner with us. Again, you can give at graceexplorations.com or you can pray uh, anywhere, anytime, or you can participate. Come to one of our base camps that's on our website at graceexplorations.com or join us here live stream as you're doing here tonight. So God bless and uh, soldier on.